hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with presenter, writer, comedy actor and musician, Mr. Roland Rivron. So, hey, Roland, it's great to be chatting with you today. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be chatting with you. Oh, you're very good. You're very good. Um, So (laughs) people may know you, obviously, as Dwayne, one half of the comedy musical duo Raw Sex with the very much missed Simon Brent. Yes. Or for your work with the comic strip, the Young Ones crowds, and also, of course, your work with Jonathan Ross and Jules Holland on yeah. various projects. But let's go back in time, back in time. Um, so you you started off, uh, uh, most basically, you're a drummer. Um, yes, I started, um, all I wanted to do from the age of about 12, 13, by the time I got to secondary school, Abbotsfield Secondary Comprehensive School in Hillingdon, um, rather than have the school, rather than have a, a, a sort of, uh, of, of creaky old um, orchestra with violins, cellos, and clarinets and bassoons. They, um, the French teacher, a man <laughs> bizarrely called Mr. Bean, um, <laughs> a very charismatic man, uh, was a jazz bass player and a saxophonist, and he generated within the school a jazz orchestra. So in, when kids came through, and the, rather than learn violins, that everyone was encouraged to learn trumpet, trombone, saxophone, you know, things that were uh, conducive to um, a, a jazz orchestra. And for the whole of the time that I was at secondary school, um, there was a thing called the Abbotsfield School Jazz Orchestra, which I became uh, the drummer. Uh, I, I inherited the drum stool from uh, the guy that now plays in Marillion. Oh, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. It'll come to me. Don't worry. Um, we've got ages. Uh, so I was playing jazz from about 15, 16, and then I started playing professionally when I was about... I did, I did my first jazz gig, uh, paid jazz gig, when I was about 16. My mum drove me to a hotel just outside of uh, Heathrow Airport where I played with a, uh, a trio, um, a guitarist and a, a, a electric organ player that played um, the, the bass pedals. It was quite phenomenal. Um, do, you, do you know, remember a show called Tales of the Riverbank? Yes, yes. Right. You know, the, the, the theme tune to that was a guitar piece by Freddie somebody. And he, anyway, he was the guy playing guitar. <laughs> uh, uh, my very first paid jazz gig. That was when I was about 15, 16. And then I sort of, I just drifted into being a professional jazz drummer from about 17, 18 for 20, 25 years before I sort of got disillusioned with it. You drummed on Blue Peter as well, I, I, I believe. Yes, it was um, Glenn Miller. It was the anniversary of Glenn Miller's death. Uh, so they thought, let's celebrate the anniversary of Glenn Miller's death by getting a, a jazz orchestra <laughs> to play In the Mood, which well. is a classic Glenn Miller track. Um, so, yeah, we, because um, uh, uh, Abbotsfield, Hillingdon, Middlesex, not a million miles away from BBC TV Centre, so they hired a bus and all sort of 18 of us trolled out uh, back in the days when we didn't have VHS recorders or anything like that. So we went and our... The item we did, because we took over the whole studio, was pre-recorded in the afternoon. So we recorded the song uh, in the mood in the mood at the, at the uh, studio one, where uh, 50 years later or whatever, I was doing French and Saunders, bizarrely. Um, uh, we recorded the number, all jumped back in the, the, the bus, 
uh, haired it back home in time to watch at five to five Blue Peter and us on it because nobody had any recording equipment. You could only just watch it that one time and then was boom. And there you go. We had it. We watched it. We, you know, it happened. Um, but very funny that we played uh, In the Mood, uh, a Glenn Miller classic, because uh, Glenn Miller died, uh, reportedly died uh, in an aeroplane in the channel. So it should have been in the channel, really, uh, uh, the English channel. Uh, but I think on closer inspection, I think he died in a brothel in France. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I think it's, it's probably the, the first is probably the better of the of the two to be known yes, for. Yes, it's, 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 it's a more fragrant um, description of what happened to him. <laughs> but um, it was amazing because I, I think I was probably 14, 15, and I was on Blue Peter. It yeah. was bizarre. It's like every every 14-year-old's dream. You so you, you got the badge and everything? Sorry? Did you get a badge and everything? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Fantastic. We all got a badge. Yeah, it was such, it was a big thing, wasn't it, in the, back in the day? You know, everyone tuned into Blue Peter every day. Well, well apparently know. it was watched by 15 million people. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Really crazy. Yeah. But that's, that the, was, that's uh, what it was back like then. then. Possibly the whole of the world. <laughs> was. So obviously people know you a little bit more for your, your comedy uh your comedy roles and things. So how did the crossover happen between you being a drummer, a jazz drummer, and right. then getting into comedy? Well, I um, secured the drum seat for the comic strip, which was a live review, uh, comedy review show that was at the Boulevard Theatre above the Raymond Review Bar in Soho. Uh, there was a lovely 200-seater um, plush velvet theatre uh, above the strip club. Uh, and for Friday night and Saturday night, we used to do two shows, seven and ten, uh, in the evening. Uh, and the lineup was Alexis Sale was the compare. Rick and Aid were 20th Century Coyote back then. Uh, Nigel Planer and Peter Richardson were the Outer Limits. They were a double act. Dawn and Jennifer were French and Saunders. They didn't have to think of a wacky name. They just used their surnames. <laughs> Arnold Brown was on as well. Uh, Robin Williams, whenever he was in town, he would drop in and, wow. and do stuff. Um, so, And they had a trio, piano, bass and drums, because each double act back then, sort of a throw, a throwback or, or sort of a, some sort of uh, hang-on from the traditional comedy uh, light-end shows, each double act did a song. So they would do their 20 minutes of comedy and then they would end with a song, bizarrely. So they needed a trio. So um, it was myself on drums, Rod Melvin, who was the original keyboard player in Kilburn and the High Roads with Ian Dury, co-wrote What a Waste with Ian. Wow. And Simon Brint was playing bass. So the three of us were the, the, the musical sort of entity and we'd play in the interval we used to do numbers for 20 minutes in the interval so um i got to know all of that lot yeah. via um just hanging out with them basically so i was sort of uh, my entry into the world of comedy started there the that comic strip um company um did a a, a nationwide tour phil mcintyre toured us around the country during that time i got to know him really well because we were stuck in a a uh, coach every day yeah. for about three months. Uh, and when we were returning from the tour, Rick Mail, uh, who was going out with Lisa Mayer at the time, they were looking for somewhere to live, as was I. So I moved in with them into uh, this townhouse in Islington, in Ellington Street. So for about two years, I shared a house with Rick Mail and Lisa Mayer. 
during that time they were writing The Young Ones. Yeah. Um, so Paul Jackson, who produced it, was, would be around a lot. We'd go to the pub and see him and, you know, and muck about. And so I sort of gradually got sort of, uh, you know, osmosis-wise, I sort of got absorbed into that, that sort of uh, the comedy television fraternity. Um, around the same time, Dawn and Jenny were doing their own thing at the Hampstead Theatre Club. They had a, a two-week run at the Hampstead Theatre Club and they needed some music, so they got Simon and I to just sit on stage and provide musical interlude and musical accompaniment. Uh, on the back of that, we sort of fabricate, we sort of created a persona, which became Ken and Dwayne, yeah. which was raw sex. Uh, and they very graciously took us with them when they were uh, snapped up by the BBC to do their show on on television. So I sort of drifted into that. At the same time, um, I was I was still professionally drumming. So, you know, that was my sort of day job, as it were, even though it was always in the evening. Uh, at the same time, uh, a friend of mine, a, a drummer, asked me if I'd debt for him. Uh, he had a residency. He was... He had the drum seat in um, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, which was a musical at the Ambassadors Theatre in the West End. And he wanted to go on holiday for two weeks, and he said, will you come in and debt? And I stupidly, I said yes. Uh, and he sent over sort of 25 songs uh, on, you know, manuscript, uh, music sheet, papers. So I, um, and some cassettes, and I mugged up these songs uh, um, went and went into the West End uh, and played in a trio in the pit at the uh, uh, Ambassador's Theatre for two weeks. That two-week run rinsed out any enthusiasm I had for drumming. Yeah. Um, it was just the first show we did, I was shitting myself. Um, <laughs> uh, the show came in 20 minutes early because the drummer was the guy that... Um, decided what tempo the songs were at and it was my first gig and I was just herring through them so we came in 20 minutes under on the first by about I don't know by about the sixth or eighth show we were allowed to have cups of tea we had mugs with Adrian Mole written on them because the, the the trio that, that was the, the band in the pit was facing the audience and the audience could see us so we were allowed to, um, so I used to have this mug with Adrian Mulrin on it, but I also had a litre bottle of Screwtop Suave <laughs> wine um, that I used to get through regularly every day. Um, so monotonous was the uh, experience. And it did. It Bizarrely, it rinsed out every sort yeah. of scintilla of enthusiasm I had for drumming. Uh, and at the same time, I was hanging out with Paul Jackson and Rick and all that, and Paul Jackson was just about to launch Ruby Wax on oh, television wow. in uh, Don't Miss Wax, which is her chat show. And he asked me to be the warm-up guy. And I said, yeah, but I'm a drummer. He <laughs> said, I know, but when we go to the pub, you make us laugh. Um, so just come and um, make the audience laugh. So I went and did that. And um, doing that a few times, somebody in the audience uh, was the producer on a show called Night Network, which was the first all-through-the-night ITV uh, network channel. And they saw me there doing the warm-up, and they said, will you come and do something on our show? So I said, yeah, I will. Uh, but I, you know, I, I always had this beautiful get-out, which was, I'll come and do this, and if it doesn't work, just be warned, I am a jazz drummer. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, if it fails, it's not my fault. I'm a jazz drummer. You've asked the wrong person. Yeah. 
But it did. It worked. Um, I did uh, the Bunker Show, which was uh, on Night Network, which was me. Basically, it was Desert Island Discs, but with videos, uh, pop videos. So I'd be there, and we'd sort of, uh, you know, um, imagine, if you will, the the three-minute warning's gone. What what eight videos are you going to take into the bunker for, that you're going to watch for the next five years while um, the world settles down? Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and, and and then Jonathan saw me on that, and Jonathan said, "Will you come and do something on the show that I'm doing?" So I sort of, you know, I I gradually got sort of pulled from pillar to post yeah. into TV, um, having sort of slightly turned my back on drumming because of the Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. <laughs> um, so obviously on tour, when you were on tour with the comic strip guys. Like I heard that you did a, you did some writing. Rick and A got you doing some writing, and I've heard that you were responsible for naming Peter Cook's character Mr. Jolly. Is that true? Oh yeah, Mr. Jolly lives next door. Yeah. yeah. No, that what that came about. Um, Rick and I. Well, the, what happened was that when the comic strip were doing the, the comic strip films on TV, um, Dawn and Jenny would write together. Uh, Nige and uh, Peter would write. I think they would write together. I'm not quite sure, but. Um, Certainly Rick and A would write together. Um, and I was living with Rick, so we were hanging out in the pub. You know, we'd get up at about 11 o'clock in the morning, cornflakes with a little sort of tiny, uh, those brandy miniature bottles, <laughs> all that on the, um, on the cornflakes with the milk. I think it was like a sort of a Bailey's cornflakes nice. thing. And then uh, come 11 o'clock, the pubs were open, so we'd go to the pub. <laughs> And we'd be there back in the day when the pub closed at three. So we'd be playing pool in the pub and we'd just leave our drinks and the pool table and everything at three o'clock, uh, go to a, a Turkish restaurant, have some late afternoon dinner uh, and keep drinking. And then at 5.30, go back and carry on playing pool and pick up where we left off. So I was hanging, I was, we were very much an item, uh, Rick and I, uh, and Aid uh, was Rick's partner. Uh, and they were writing. They were writing this idea. But it was the Dangerous Brothers, as was, and the, what, the two characters that yeah. became Bottom. Um, they were writing uh, an idea, and they said initially, they said because I was hanging out with them, they said, "Look, we'll, give, we'll pay you ten pounds uh, for each gag that you <laughs> sort of contribute," and so, so I could be in the same room while they were writing. Uh, and it very quickly sort of became apparent that um, they said to a limit of £100. So <laughs> I'd done the 10 gags in the first sort of day and, there, and I came up with the, yeah, there was lots of things, Mr Jolly, uh, his name, escorts of escorts, come in if you saw. See, there's lots of things that I sort of came up with. So eventually they said, look, rather than us pay you 10 quid a gag, we'll just do a three-way split on the writing. Wow. So that was, um, I was very, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's a great film, I was very proud that um, they let me um, be a, a co-writer on the film. So that's how that came about. Yeah, I mean, the whole series was, it's so iconic, isn't it? You know, even today it's still, you know, you still watch it and it's still and on so TV. It was, it was completely individual and not really that derivative. Having said that, that you know, Rick and Aid were basically 20th Century Coyote, you know, um, the cartoon characters. Uh, it was... Uh, that's their their sort of source material, but yeah, it was it was a breath of fresh air. Certainly at that time, it was that was the sort of pivotal changing point from you know uh, shiny black floor Saturday night entertainment yeah. into uh, a bit more sort of cutting edge. 
also it was it was um, comedy that teenagers could could um, own. It yeah. was like yeah, my parents don't understand it, but I do. You know, so so they had that that they they were identified by that type of humour. Yeah, I mean, I would have been the same. Like Vic, Vic and Bob, sort of when they right. came out in the nineties, yeah, that was similar, it was, very, it was like a, a thing that yeah. when that arrived, you know, and to a degree, the Fast Show. Yeah, um, it was you know it was suitably different, uh, uh, and it was the sort of thing that if you were a teenager of just the right age, sort of emotionally and hormonally, you just latched onto it. Yeah, like Rick and Aid, they kind of spoke for the the kids, you know, and you kind of mm. you know going through the young ones, and then sort of following them through into Bottom, and you know all the other stuff they were doing. Yeah. They, they just kind of, it's like we spoke the same language, you know. Yeah, well, they, I mean, the thing is, if you if you look at the crazy the the, the anarchic stuff that Rick and Aid did, it was it's all based on the, the Wiley Coyote and you yeah. know uh, and all that, and that was the. That, that, was, that was their reference and I think you know kids could see the cartoon um, excess you know that, that they achieved uh, in, a, in a very sort of human visual form yeah yeah on a bit of a side note I wanted to mention about the, the French and Saunders musical parodies that you did the videos mm. were just they were just so uh, hilarious the ABBA one especially I, yeah. I'm just, I just re-watch it and re-watch it it's so so good yeah, c'est la vie. Um, that, I mean, the, the, that, all that, I think all of that um, became uh, so strong because once they'd gone to the Beeb and their show was a success, yeah. they were sort of, throw, the, the people, the, the Beeb threw back then, the BBC <laughs> were just sort of awash with money. Because yeah. um, I think uh, old age pensioners were still paying licence fees. Um, but uh, they were awash with money and just, they they could write they could write sketches uh, that that increasingly cost more and more money to the point where you know you get um, the Silence of the Lambs parody and all that you know just yeah. they're like sixteen minute mini film and that's I just just that was them giving free Dawn and Jenny giving free reign because initially they're writing sketches where it's the two of them talking to each other on stage yeah and then sort of ten years later they're doing Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so let's talk a bit about music now. So obviously, as a drummer uh, mm-hmm. in your past, it's obviously in your DNA. Um, so I mean, what's been your your key music loves over the years? What's been your 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 go to bands that you've loved? Go to bands, probably in Dury and the Blockheads. Um, I was big on them uh, as a jazz drummer. I got into Billy Cobham, Buddy Rich, big band. Um, that was uh, I used to listen to a lot of his stuff. Uh, who else? Oh, there was. Uh, uh, CLT, I think it's called. Is it? It's a West Coast jazz label. Right. Might be CLT. I don't know. Um, uh, and there was uh, a guy called Billy Higgins, a drummer, who sadly died of a heroin overdose. But I met him at Ronnie's one night when he was playing with Cedar Walton. Um, and he was a lovely, really smiley man. Unbeknownst to me, he was injecting heroin in oh between his toes at the time. But, uh, you know, I was but 2021, 20, so I was unaware. Uh, so people like that were pretty amazing. That cool West, jo- West, West Coast jazz stuff, CTI, I think it's called, yeah. Um, Billy Higgins, Cedar Walton, uh, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so anything kind of, um, I don't know, I hate to use the word modern, but um, kind of who, who's floating your boat at the moment musically? What sort of stuff? Yeah. 
Sadly, no longer no longer with us, but Prince, uh, big on him. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm listening to a lot of James Brown, uh, which, again, is not that contemporary. Uh, people at the minute, I, I have trouble with a lot of the music that I'm hearing on Radio 1. I know. Uh, because yeah. it's, it's, it feels like if you touch it, you'll get an electric shock. <laughs> you know, that yeah. stuff that, um, in my day, uh, it was called Nylon. And if you rubbed it very uh, viciously and then touched it, it would uh, harm you. Yeah. Uh, I, I have that. That's why I, how I'm seeing a lot of uh, contemporary music at the minute. It's you can you can hear that they've used 400 channels. Yeah. To record a song that they could have done with a 24-track studio, um, and it's just like I don't know. It sounds sounds like it. It's not good for your health. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us have moved to radio too. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> You've got to move with the times, haven't you, Roland? I think you know. Well, exactly. Move with your age. Act your stuff. age. That's exactly. the other thing. Well, well, you know. Not your shoe size. Sometimes, as Prince would say. Very, very true. Um, so, best gig. You must have been to a few gigs over the years. Who would have, Who would you say has been the best live act you've seen? Best live act I've seen. Well, you see, again, I mean, recently, recently, I've not really. I say recently, I mean in the last sort of three or five years, yeah. I'm not really... The last band I probably went to see was uh, the Blockheads, um, and we're going back probably 10, 15 years at the Kentish Town Forum, uh, just before Ian died, um, yeah. you know, and uh, everyone in the audience was in tears because they knew that Ian was about to drop dead, yeah. and Ian knew he was about to drop dead. So it was a, the most incredibly emotional um, gig because we were all there for the last time sort of thing. So that was the last big sort of... Um, uh, well, that's, a, that's the, the gig that immediately springs to mind. Yeah, so you were, you were also part of the Idiot Bastard Band uh, with oh, Aid, yeah. Aid yeah. Phil, and obviously yeah, with, they very much miss Neil, and, uh, Neil Innes. Neil, yeah. So is yeah, that something we, that's we, still, we, it's still kind of happening, or would it not happen without Neil? Um, no, well, it, it sort of didn't happen soon as Neil moved to um, France about three years ago. Yeah. And uh, so that made life difficult. And I sort of lost interest in it. Yeah. And he was the sort of driving force in as much as we were using his van to get around the country. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we sort of did it and it, it ran its course and then it sort of petered out quite naturally. Yeah, because I think Aid, Aid had a band, time. didn't he? The Bad Shepherds. The Bad Shepherds, uh, that was it. Uh, folk, folk versions of punk songs. I don't know whether he's still doing that. I, uh, he might well be. I mean, it's, it's a much easier gig to tour than trying to get, you know, me, Phil Jupiter's, yeah. Neil Innes and, and uh, Face Ache together. You know, date-wise, it was always quite tricky to, to get our diaries to coincide. Yeah, are you still in? Are you still in touch with everybody? Uh, you know, Aid and uh, all those guys. All the uh, no, not really. I mean, we sort of, you know, if we see each other. But the thing was, this is the, this, the, the weird thing. I don't know if you've experienced this. Whoever I was working with, I was like bosom buddies with uh, Jonathan Ross yeah. while I was doing the Jonathan Ross show. Yeah, we 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 went on holiday on holiday together. Our families all hung out together. And it's one of those weird things that one, when you're working with someone, they're your best friend. Yeah. And then when you're not working with them, you sort of don't really see them. You know, that's the nature of, uh, I think, b being a performer, being, you know, doing TV or, or live stuff. Um, it's a completely different set of you, you're, you're really, really.
really close with them when you're working with them because it's conducive to be. Uh, and then when you're not working with them, there's no reason to, you know. I toured with French and Saunders, and Simon and I toured with Dawn and Jenny for a whole year, 12 yeah. months. We toured around the country doing theatres. And we, we we were inseparable. You know, we ate together, we got yeah. up, we had breakfast together. We sat in a, a tour bus and chatted all day together. Then we were on stage together. Then we'd go out for a meal afterwards together. And then we'd have a drink in the bar together. And then when we're not touring, boom, yeah. just don't see them. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Uh, consequently, I have absolutely no friends. Jules <laughs> <laughs> uh, Holland, you must must still be friends with Jules. Um, I mean, that I, must have been I, great. You drummed, drummed with Jules. A, a good acquaintance, yes. He's godfather to my uh, daughter. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, I was touring with him. We we, we did uh, Groovy Fellas. We were living in uh, living in each other's pockets. Uh, we would finish each other's sentences. My mum thought I was related to him when <laughs> she saw him on the tube. So she said, I've seen the bloke on television that talks and acts just like you do. And this was like five, eight years before I ever met him. Yeah. Um, so that was a weird thing. Yeah, no, he, we, we, so we, we are in touch now and again. You know, we well, we email each other the odd thing, or he'll send me a picture of something bizarre, <laughs> and I'll reply. Um, but uh, you know, our paths, because again, because we're not working yeah. with him, with yeah, each, with that person, our paths don't cross. There's no, there's no reason he doesn't live locally. You know, so he is. Yeah, I can, put, I can, I'll put him on the on the on the page of friends. Uh, he'll be at the top. But it probably is, it's one of about two or three. <laughs> yeah, I heard the story about uh, the firework party that you had at Jules' house on the on the on the veranda. Something about on some... the, uh, yeah, he had a little veranda above the. He's, uh, when he was married to his first wife, uh, they had a barber's in uh, Blackheath, and they lived above it, and they had just had a little tiny veranda. And uh, back then, I was big into pyrotechnics, <laughs> fireworks, setting bangers off on my head, and juggling rockets and things like that. Yeah, so there was a lot of mischief. I think I climbed on the roof and did something. <laughs> oh, heady days. Heady days. Uh, heady days. <laughs> I, I, you know, back then I had no fear. Yeah. That's the thing yeah. at that age. You don't care, do you? You're just, you're just living and... No, know. sadly, everyone I was with didn't care either. <laughs> Especially if, if they're letting you set bangers off on your head, you know. Yeah, they're letting me fall off a three-storey building. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, you've you've had a lot lot of narrow escapes anyway over the years. Uh, you had your oh, yeah. jo- you've had your jaw wired shut. Uh, you nearly blinded yourself with a cork in a getting a cork out of a bottle. You rode a mountain um, bike oh, down the oh, stairs of the Groucho. Oh, a lesbian party on the Vauxhall one way system. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you know I, I, it was back when I was working with a, a duo called Biddy and Eve, which is yeah. a burlesque show at the Blitz Club where the new romantic movement started. George, uh, George O'Dowd, or, or Boy George, as yeah. we know him, was the hat check girl. She, he used to take the <laughs> coats as she went in. Literally, he was there being the coat monitor. And that's where um, uh, uh, Spandau Ballet used to be. The, they were regular customers, and Steve Strange, and uh, people like that. Um, and after the, one of our shows, uh, we used to do 30 Friday, Saturday night, uh, Eve said, oh, a friend of mine's having a party at the, on the Vauxhall one-way system. And she was a lesbian. And I just thought, oh. <laughs> so the idea, the thought of a, a straight man being able to gatecrash a lesbian party, I had visions of, you know, just seas of naked women divorcing with each other. Yeah. 
And it was like that, uh, is it some sort of Greek tragedy where the bloke's blinded <laughs> when he goes somewhere? He's, uh, I thought, I'm, I'm in for an eyeful here. And I quite literally got an eyeful because I opened this really cheap bottle of champagne and the cork um, went off, went through my glasses into my eye. Uh, all the glass went in my eye. So, you know, half an hour later, I'm in St. Thomas's Hospital with a, a doctor with a needle trying to remove shards of glass from my eye, oh my thinking I should be at the lesbian party where they're probably <laughs> all in the bath now. Uh, but the bizarre thing was that uh, I went to St. Thomas's Hospital. I don't know if you know St. Thomas's Hospital. It's on the South Bank yeah. opposite uh, the Houses of Parliament. So I, uh, I've got an eye trauma. Uh, I'm all heavily bandaged over one eye, and they said, we're going to have to put you stay. You're going to have to stay overnight right. while we see what, what happens. So they took me up, up five flights of, uh, five flights of stairs uh, in a lift uh, to the eye ward. Now, the eye ward was full of blokes lying in bed with bandages over both eyes. And this eye ward, um, at the end of the eye ward, was a big sort of six-foot-by-eight-foot window with a panoramic view over the Houses of Parliament, the Thames, you know, the West End. It was gorgeous. And in this room were a bunch of people that couldn't see a thing. <laughs> It was the most, it was like, we should be in the basement, surely. I mean, this this room's wasted on these people. <laughs> the most, people used to come, the next day when visitors came, they'd come in with, you know, grapes and flowers and all that to see whoever it was they'd come to see. And they'd just sort of prop, plop the bloody grapes down on the bed and, and just everyone was just at the window admiring. <laughs> it's like, we're on the fifth floor, we've got the panoramic view over London. This is unbelievable. <clears throat> and all these guys with bandages over their eyes. That's crazy. Um, so, yeah, riding a bike down the, the stairs of the Groucho, how did that happen? Like, you obviously don't just one day decide to... The right, oh, the bike thing. Oh, yeah. what a nightmare that was. Um, they used to, I used to regularly, there used to regularly be a lock-in uh, at the Grouch. So the Grouch would be open until back, back then, it was like half 12 or something like that. And then the, we'd wait for the our, our towners to leave, and then they'd lock the doors, close the curtains, and we'd all carry on. Uh, and one thing that the the waiters used to do, because a lot of the waiters used to cycle to work, they used to see how quickly they used to do a little time trial from the brasserie at the back. They used to see how quickly they could ride their bike through, round all the tables, through the bar, and out to the uh, the, the main door. And I was watching this one evening, and I thought, well, guys, this is all right. Look, you've got mountain bikes, all right? You know, just <laughs> let's study the word mountain bike. Um, let's, why don't we start upstairs in the main restaurant and see how long it takes us to go from the main restaurant down the stairs and out through to the front door. And they said, well, we're not going to do that. You do that. You're an idiot. Uh, so I said, all right. And I borrowed somebody's bike. And I went up there, and uh, I just rode down the stairs. And obviously, I clutched the wrong brake. It was the front wheel. Uh, I went completely over the handlebars at the bottom of the stairs. Uh, thankfully, the bar stools broke a lot of my momentum. Uh, but I endured sort of quite severe carpet burns down one side of my face. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I broke some bones in my hand. Uh, but I jumped up and, you know, proclaimed that everything was fine. Unfortunately, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd bent the frame of this guy's bike, so I had to buy him a new bike. Uh, and I also later the next day found out that I'd broken some bones in my hand 
Uh, so I had to phone Jules because I was touring with Jules in the big band, the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. We were supposed to be playing in Wales two days later at some uh, jazz festival. I had to phone him to say that I, I've, I'm, in, I'm in plaster, I can't play. So um, they got Gilson Lavis, his regular drummer, who I was deputing for because Gilson had had a heart attack five months earlier. Oh uh, so that's why I was dragged back into the band. So Gilson was recovering from a heart attack. I had endured some broken bones. Gilson had to be dragged out of early retirement from a heart attack to play the gig. Um, he played the gig, and after the gig, his drum kit was nicked. Oh, no! Um, <laughs> yeah, it was the most sort of bizarre uh, chain of events, <laughs> all starting from me drinking three Pisco Sours, which is a Peruvian <laughs> drink, uh, at the Groucho Club, getting completely off my face, riding a bike down the stairs, carpet burns, broken hand, plaster, Gilson out of a heart attack recovery, you know, retirement, um... Uh, drum kit stolen it was uh, sort of things like that used to happen quite regularly so they were taken as almost everyday occurrences so they weren't seen uh, as anything that sort of out of the ordinary bizarrely it's only when i'm interviewed and uh, i'm asked to sort of talk about them <laughs> you, you, you think hang on a minute that was just completely <laughs> mad but when you're in the midst of it it's just like this is normal isn't it, it doesn't everybody do this <laughs> It's crazy. Seriously, how are you still alive? You know. Uh, oh well, exactly. I mean, that, that's why it's, it's quite enjoyable getting <laughs> up every morning and and seeing myself in the mirror. <laughs> so we of course have to talk about your fantastic win on the Let's Dance for Sport Relief in 2012. Oh, right. The Fat Boy Slim's weapon of choice. You danced to. Very yes. very worthy winner. Um. So how did that come about? That well, must have been amazing. Is, again, another bizarre thing. Um. I got phoned up, uh, and they said. Um, we're doing this thing, sport relief, less dance, whatever. And they said we've got we've got everybody that uh, we want to dance on it. But um, because it's a live show, if anyone injures themselves, we need somebody to sort of uh, have a dance routine to sort of step in in case somebody hurts themselves right. and can't perform. So basically, it was like, yeah, we didn't phone you to ask you to be on the show, but. You were on the list, and we need somebody as a, a substitute in case somebody drops out. So I said, all right, oh, all right thanks. Thanks, <laughs> but, you know, cheers. It's like if I've not been asked to do it, but I've been asked to be there sort of thing. Yeah. So they, I turned up, and they said, look, there's various things. There was, you know, what, what dance do you want to learn? And I think one of them was George Michael's come out, so, you know, the one where he's in the lab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was one of the things. Another one was, do you want to dress up as Kylie Minogue? Um, can't get you out of my mind or whatever it was. Uh, and I said, no, I don't really fancy that. And then there was one with uh, Christopher Walken dressed in a suit, dancing. And I thought, well, you know, I, I wear a lot of suits and I'll, I'll, I'll go with that one if you don't mind. So, look, what, what happens was... Um, as the show, as the series came nearer to being broadcast, I spent about two weeks learning this routine yeah. with this uh, professional dancer. And basically, every week when the show was on, I'd have to turn up and just wait there in case, in rehearsals, somebody hurt themselves. And if they did, I'd then sort of fill that three-minute, four-minute gap. Um, so each week, I'd go there 
uh, you know, refresh the, rehearse the, the routine, wait there, get dressed up and make up and everything and wait there. And if anyone fell out and no, nobody's fallen out. Okay, thank you. <laughs> right, go home. See you next week. Come and do the same thing. And it was like, this isn't very, you know, I'm not, I'm not too happy with this. And they said, look, on the, what we'll do is on the last show, on the last of the series before we go, you know, to the semi-final and the final, you can be on, you know, it's, it's like a token thing. We'll, we'll let you on the show. And it's like, oh, great, thanks. So I was let on the show and I won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just so, Basically. so good. Yeah, and it was just, it wasn't a an easy dance routine either by the no, look of it. No, no, I mean, it was, uh, the thing was, I, 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 while I was learning that, I was using muscles and, and ligaments and God knows what that I never realised I had. And I was seeing a, a physiotherapist because uh, it completely did me knees in. I was, the knees were all sort of, you know, those weird sort of day glow things that you see tennis players have around their knees. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had those virtually all over my body. It was bizarre, but um, but it, it was great because because I'd rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. I sort of it became second nature. So when I did have to do it, it was um, it was good. But looking, but watching it back, yeah. the mirror thing where I'm dancing with these other dancers mm. is like quite bizarre. When you're actually doing it, you don't think that that much is happening. It's only when you look back at it and you think, bloody hell, <laughs> that was a bit impressive. Yeah, you certainly used the whole stage, didn't you, with the, the, the coat yes. rack and flying around on the coat rack and stuff. Yeah, 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 on the, uh, on the, 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 the luggage trolley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must have been, for you to then win, do you know what I mean, after, I after that, all that? that is what was really bizarre, <laughs> you know, because I was the sort of... I was a sort of token underdog. You know, just, just be here if we need you. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually, I'm better than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to think about it, anyway. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about you're you're a keen caravanner. I mean, I don't know if yeah. every, everybody knows this about you. And you and your wife, uh, mm. Monica, you go out and you've done this series of Riveron's caravan adventures. So I mean, is it something that you're you've kind of been doing a little bit more since lockdown? Obviously, people are kind of doing the whole staycation thing. No, not at all. I tell you for why. We're fair with the caravanners. Um, our caravan is a twin axle, six berth um, Bailey um, pageant Loire uh, caravan. Is in storage in Biritz in the south of oh France. Oh my god! And uh, in fact, we're going there the week after next. So we're going to drive down there, and it's it's been there for the last five years. So what we do is we ring them, they get it out of storage for us, put it on a pitch. And we just drive down there and enjoy the caravan and then get in the car and go home and they come and pick the caravan up and take it back into storage. So we don't do any caravanning in this country. So it's like we're frauds, really. <laughs> um, You're probably better off doing it in Europe anyway. It's a you know, lot nicer scenery. Yeah. Well, also, um, you know, when our kids were growing up, we, we've got this campsite that we've been going to for the last 15 years. And it's right on the coast half a mile south of Spirits. It's eight miles from the Spanish border. It's on the Atlantic coast. It's right. just idyllic. And um, we, we don't really want to go anywhere else other than there. So uh, we're not truly embracing the idea of a caravan as a yeah. location to stay in. I suppose with, when your kids grow up, do you know what I mean? Obviously you and, you and your missus, you want to go off and do your own, do your own thing. 
Well, no, we we go and do exactly this. We go to exactly the same place we went to when we had to look after the kids. But right. We have the the, the the lovely serenity of not having to look after them, <laughs> so we can completely enjoy it, enjoy that holiday experience. What we used to do is we used to go there for four weeks in the whole of August to sort of absorb the boredom of the summer holiday. Yeah. When the kids were growing up, for, I think my youngest first went there when he was 13 and he was still going there when he was 16 or something like that. Um, so that their, their summer holidays, that's all really, that's all they know is going there and hanging out. But they had no complaints because they loved it. And we just, we were, we're going there now, as I say, week after next. Uh, we love going there just as two adults because uh, it's a completely different holiday when you're not... Um, having to corral three kids. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what do the kids think of your your past? And I'm, I'm assuming they know about your your, your colourful past. Mm. Uh, they, well, they, it's just that uh, it's the norm. The, yeah. Uh, the, as far as they're concerned, the, the, nothing's been presented just what Dad to them does. as a surprise. It's just so uh, they've grown up with it, and it's like, well, isn't isn't every dad like that? <laughs> <laughs> would that uh, would that was the case? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I've got a question from one of my friends. He's asked, uh, "What's my friend Paul has asked? What's your ultimate cheese sandwich recipe, and how would you top it if you were ever on MasterChef again?" Cheese sandwich. Mm. Ultimate cheese sandwich. Uh, I I eat quite a lot of cheese sandwiches actually. Um, I'm a big favour. Uh, it'll it'll be um, uh, goat's butter bread. Uh, bread goat's butter buttered um mustard mayonnaise obviously slices of cheese but then fresh tomatoes <clears throat> ideally um small plum tomatoes from our uh, our local organic shop here uh they're tomatoes that that, that the most incredible burst of tomato sensation taste um uh, a, a bit of lettuce um some finely chopped onion uh, and that, that that would do it, I think. Yeah, are you are you very particular about your cheese? Just um, a bit of everything. I, I, just a very strong, a very strong, good um, uh, cheddar. A very, okay. a very strong cheddar um, uh, uh, for a sandwich. But with a biscuit, it's got to be a uh, a blue vein, some sort of a a very sort of acidic, strong stinky cheese with, <laughs> with a biscuit but you know but in a sandwich it's got to be you know a clean a clean firm strong uh cheddar oh yeah there's no point doing it half assed is there you know just these these mild cheeses i know i i mean they're cooking cheeses so many cheeses <laughs> uh, that, that, all you can do really is use them on a pizza very good well on that note thank you so so much for chatting with me roland it's been a huge pleasure not at all. Thank you for asking me. It's been lovely listening to you. Thank you. Oh, no, it's the other way around. As I said, I don't know how you're, you're still alive after some of your, you know... And I stroke a lot of black cats. <laughs>